Hi, everyone. I'm Abby, here with an exciting announcement. EJ and I will be at Northside Library on Tuesday, November 15th from 1 to 2 p.m. for a special live event, Podcasting, A Day in the Life. Whether your aim is to create something new using podcasting technology or you love to listen and learn, this session is for you. Don't forget to register at jmrl.org. We hope to see you there. You're listening to On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library. Welcome back to another episode of On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library System. I'm Abby, here with my co-host EJ. That's right, I'm EJ. In today's episode, you'll hear a snapshot of what's coming up at JMRL these next two weeks, followed by book chat and our next installment of Overbooked. But first, we want to give a big thank you to the awesome friends of the library. The Friends of JMRL raise money to support so many library endeavors. They have a major hand in funding educational and recreational programming for people of all ages. In short, we could not do what we do without them, and we're super appreciative. We're also appreciative of the thousands of people who attended the Friends Fall Book Sale this month. When you buy books, toys, and games at the book sale, you are directly supporting the library. So thank you so much. We're already looking forward to the spring sale. Now let's jump in to how you can grow, learn, and connect these next two weeks at JMRL. At Central, we'll be screening Godzilla, King of Monsters, on Sunday, November 6th at 2 p.m. in honor of Godzilla's birthday. There will be cake. At Crozet, don't miss the carved pumpkin palooza on Sunday, October 30th. The pumpkins will be glowing bright from 6.30 to 8 p.m. At Gordon, crafty teens can decorate a coffee mug on Tuesday, November 1st at 4.30 p.m. Mugs and Sharpies for decorating are provided. At Green, kids can play with art and science together by making a salt painting masterpiece on Thursday, November 10th at 3.30 p.m. At Louisa, the Legos will be out and about for an hour of brain-building fun on Tuesday, November 8th from 2 to 3 p.m. At Nelson, the Little Bookworms Storytime is ready to delight your toddler each and every Wednesday morning from 10.30 to 11 a.m. At Northside, there will be a diabetes cooking demo with samples and tons of information on Wednesday, November 9th at 1.30 p.m. And at Scottsville, children of all ages can learn and dance Nutcracker-themed ballet steps on Friday, November 4th at 3 p.m. As always, check the calendar to find more information and to register. Thanks, EJ. Now let's dive into Book Chat. For Book Chat, I read The Office BFFs by Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey. This is a nonfiction celebrity memoir, and I read it this summer when I was sick. It is the perfect book to read in the summer when you're sick. It's fun. It's funny. It's full of cool bits of trivia. It's just really enjoyable. There are pictures throughout, and maybe it only works if you're an Office fan, uh, but I'm going to get into some more universally applicable themes or ideas as well. 
So a little bit of backstory about this. I personally am an Office fan. I really enjoyed watching the series, but I couldn't get into the Office Ladies podcast. So if you're an Office fan, you probably know that there is now a popular podcast called Office Ladies that Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey run together. And even though I loved the show, I didn't enjoy the podcast. For me, it was too much rambling. When you watch a TV show, you feel like you know their voices, but you don't. You don't, you don't know their real voices. Like I didn't realize that when people are acting, it's not necessarily their real voice. Yeah. It's their acting voice. It's like Jenna Fisher as Pam, you know, so so that's her Pam voice, whereas her real voice I just found different. And maybe I just wanted to hold on to her as Pam. Okay. So I didn't so much get into the podcast because it was a little bit rambling. And for me, it was a little bit tedious. And it was just like they were long episodes. I couldn't devote that much time to a podcast. But this was the perfect medium to essentially experience the podcast through the written word. I could read it on my own time. You know, you can plow through this book super quick or just kind of flip through it. It's a way to get the podcast content and information, all the behind the scenes, insider kind of stuff you're going to get in the book. The other part of it, besides just being an office fandom type book, is that they talk about being working moms and mom friends, which I always appreciate because no matter what your marital status or if you have children, being a woman in show business or any business or working situation has unique challenges. So I'm glad that these two were able to shed light on what it was like for them to return to work, what it was like, what anyone might feel when they're returning to work before they feel ready. But they also acknowledged the privilege that they had in their particular industry. Like Angela shared stories about how she was able to have her baby on the set almost all the time. So yeah, just it's mostly light, fun and funny. But there are some great pieces there about female friendship and friendships as adults, working friendships and returning to work after having children. So for my book chat this week, I read a novella by Needy Okafor called Binti. And I loved it. I thought it was a really fun and timely read. It's kind of science fiction, kind of speculative fiction, kind of dystopian. It's got a lot of different things, uh, genres going for it. But what I really enjoyed the most was that it felt like a complete story because it is a novella, so it's slightly shorter than, you know, your traditional novels. It took about four hours to listen to, so it's not so bad. Um, but I felt like I listened to a complete story from beginning to end, which sometimes you don't get in novellas, at least I find, that sometimes you want more. You you know, you want them to be a little longer, novel length. This was great. I We had a beginning, middle, and an end. There was a resolution at the end. But it also did such great world building and storytelling and character character development in such a short amount of time that it easily could open up for sequels, which it does have. I believe there's now three different Binti stories within the overarching Binti universe, sort of, that the author has created. I went into this book not knowing at all what it was about. It was recommended to me by one of our colleagues. And 
All I knew was that it was good, it was short, and that it had won some awards. So it has won the Hugo and the Nebula Award. So that, I mean, it's award-winning. So again, well-written in my opinion. I will give just a tiny bit of a synopsis. Uh, This is from the author's website that doesn't give too much away, but kind of gives people an idea of what it was. Basically, it's about Binti, who is the first Himba person who was offered a place at the prestigious Omza University, which is the finest institution of higher learning in their galaxy. But in order to get to Umza, Binti must travel farther from her home than she ever has before. And in fact, very rarely do the Himba people actually leave their home planet. And so, and this is a direct quote from the author's website. So she must give up her place in her family to travel between the stars among strangers who do not share her ways or respect her customs. So basically the entire story takes place on the transport ship that Binti is on, well, getting to the ship, on the ship, the journey to get to the Umza University. And it's very treacherous journey. They have to pass through areas where there's ongoing conflict. And so that plays a factor as it is a short novel. You can expect things to happen very quickly and things to escalate very fast as well. It has a lot of very timely themes, especially stuff that's kind of going on in the news right now that you see when you turn on your television. Some themes such as antiquities, what should we do with them when they come from a different place? Who should have them? These questions that maybe seem quite simple, this book deals with that a little bit. Um, There's revenge themes. There's obviously an overarching conflict or war going on as well. So the character development, the story, all of it, because it is a novella, it's all tied up in a nice little bow. You get a lot of information really quickly about everything. And I'm excited to read the next novella in this kind of journey of Binti's to see what she decides to do next and to see where her journey ends up. All right, listeners, you know what time it is. It's overbooked time. Today, we're discussing chapters 25 through 27 of our book club pick, The Glass Ocean. Okay, so we're going to start with chapter 25. And the first piece of intrigue is actually related to the past. We're going here with Robert and Robert's dad. We're finding out more about this mysterious telegram And we find out that Robert and his dad were working together. And then it becomes a big question of who was a traitor. Was Robert a traitor? Was Robert's dad a traitor? And John ultimately says that Robert's dad was the traitor. He was selfish and he cared about his own reputation more than his country, more than his family, blah, blah, blah. Now, My first conversation talking point around this is that Sarah is all concerned about the fact that this is going to destroy the Langford family legacy. I don't know about you, EJ, but when I read this, I was like, eh, like, who cares? Honestly, really? I don't care about the family at this point, the family legacy. I don't know if anybody else in the world cares about this family legacy and The fact that it's a few generations removed as well, 
I just thought it was really interesting, the fact that the authors thought this would be a believable talking point, that anyone's going to care about a historical, basically a historical jerk when there's actually something interesting happening with the Langfords in present day, the whole Callie scandal with John. So I don't know, like, okay, does anyone really care that much about you? I think that's probably because you're not British that you think that. That's what these families like the Langfords have going for them is it's their years of service and their father's years of service and their father's father's and their father's 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 years of service. That's what they have going for them. So their family legacy is literally everything to them. So they're all of John's credibility. He already had lost a lot of that with the whole Cali situation. I'm not at all surprised that this is a big deal because... Sarah's freaking out because she knows enough about this type of stuff to know that John will never get welcomed back into Parliament with this coming to light. So I think that that's probably where that comes from. I think everybody's jumping to such great lengths when they don't even know if that's the truth. I think that's probably the more unbelievable part for me is that they're just guessing at this point. Like they don't know for sure that their hypothesis is correct and they're all kind of operating under the assumption that it is, which I guess is fine. But also, like you said, it kind of just takes away from it a little bit because they have no idea if this is right. I also don't think Sarah's going to let it come to light anyway. And I think this chapter just kind of tells me that she cares more about him and his legacy than she does about maybe her own. Yes. Okay. Sarah's chapter, it continues with this They have this one chapter where their relationship all of a sudden gets deep. She's talking about her dad's alcoholism. He's talking about going to sex camp with Callie. It's like all of a sudden they just share their most deepest, darkest secrets, their shames, you know, their sadness, their inner child, whatever. They basically take one chapter and say, okay, now we're going to share with each other and then of course they have this mind-blowing sex. But I don't know, EJ, before we before we started recording, we both said that we were feeling a little bored with Sarah's chapters. I think for us it was all about the anticipation. And it's great that they're together. Like that's nice. Um I was like, okay, again, like whatever. Okay, now they're consummating their relationship. Great. Woohoo. And then in the same vein, at the end of the chapter, Sarah casually is flipping through notes and she finds something new, some new name. And, you know, it just doesn't mean anything to me at this point. It's another clue. Is the mystery going to go down this other layer? We're going to have another thing of mystery here. But I just feel like it's too late in the book for me to continue to have another twist and turn. Like, I don't need another twist and turn because I just want Sarah's chapters to be shorter and for the historical chapters to be longer. She finds a piano recital handbill that she's going through. I think that is indicating that Caroline was pregnant and that that child is who is playing in the handbill. And so Robert kept tabs on it because there was no clear indicator whether it was Gilbert or Robert's child. It's maybe a stretch there, but... I I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past Robert to keep tabs on Caroline and or any Caroline connection not because he doesn't like love who he loves or whatever and at this point I think you could probably guess that he and Caroline don't end up together 
which I guess will just lead us right into Caroline's chapter, which just puts a neat bow on everything, I thought. I was like, okay, Caroline's chapter is pretty uh, succinct. A lot going on, obviously, a lot of action. But at least we get some <laughs> we get some resolutions. Yeah, Caroline's chapter was great. Wow, she made a decision. We have to wait and see who it is. One page later. Oh, man, she chose Gilbert. Great. Oh, no, he might die. Here's the torpedo. Gilbert is missing. So it's just, you know, back to back to back. Like, ooh, bam, bam, bam. And yeah, it feels it, it's nice to be in a place where there's resolution and it's a nice resolution. I think we talked a few weeks ago about how... If Caroline ends up with Gilbert, there's the possibility for everyone to have a happy ending. So that's good. And yeah, let's talk about, if you don't mind, DJ, what if we just jump to the point where Ginny abandons Tess at the end of the chapter? What did you think about that? Yeah, sure. So just kind of set the scene a little bit. So Caroline, after the torpedo hits... Caroline obviously has been separated from Gilbert at this point after their ice cream date. She heads to their staterooms because clearly she was like, Gilbert's super smart. He's like the smartest person I know. That's where Gilbert would go. He would go to our staterooms to get our life jackets, our life vests. So she heads that way. But instead of finding Gilbert, she gets to the rooms and she runs into Tess and who she knows is Jones. We know is Ginny and Jones. And... (laughs) It's very funny because I guess Tess is passed out. We know from her previous chapter she had like fallen over or something. So she is not awake. Ayn is like really taking in quickly what's going on, like what's happening here. And and so Tess eventually wakes up. But they're like after Tess is able to get a little bit of help from Caroline and Ginny, Jones and Jones slash Ginny, she just kind of takes off. She just literally abandons Tess and Caroline sticks around and helps Tess get her life jacket on, stand up, make sure she's okay, she can walk, and they kind of work together to to get to the deck to potentially be rescued, I guess, or they're trying to get to higher ground at this point. But all Tess can care about, or all she asks about is, where's Ginny, where's Ginny, where's Ginny? I thought it was sad how... Ginny was so obsessed with stealing that Caroline was actually the one who initiated, like, let's get Tess out of here, out of my room. The ship is sinking. And then Tess says, Ginny, please stay with me. We can do this together. But Ginny was already standing, furtively glancing around the room. Since you can walk on your own, little sister, it's time I say goodbye for now. She paused, but I'll find you. With something that sounded almost like softness, she bent down and whispered into Tessa's ear, I promise. I just don't know if Ginny's lying to herself, if she's lying to Tess, if she's lying to everyone, or if she really thinks that she's going to see her sister again. I used to be sympathetic towards Ginny. I felt like she was kind of ignorant or just didn't, she thought that she had control of things, but she really didn't. But I think this is like a low blow after a number of low blows to Tess. Then Tess's chapter turns into like everybody's chapter. So I think we can move on. I think that's Caroline's chapter there in a nutshell. 
Tess just still constantly looking for Jenny. Like she just has to have Jenny. She has to figure out where Jenny is. So anywhere they are on the deck, like she's looking all around. She's noticing people like this kid, you know, this mother, you know, yelling for her child or, you know, which is just freaking heartbreaking to read and to listen to the peril that's going on in the ship at this point. But Tess is just continuously looking for Jenny and eventually they get to the deck and they actually see Robert and Gilbert, which is good because then that means that the four of them are at least alive. But Tess is really concerned that she's got to tell she's got to tell Robert who Jenny's <laughs> contact is. She's like, they're getting onto a boat and he's like helping her on the boat. And she's like, I got to tell you, it's Marjorie Schuyler. And it's like your life is like in his hands right now. But you're getting that job done. And like, good for you, Tess. Yeah, that was like a tiny bit of a I don't know if it was wrong for me to chuckle in that moment, but I also did as well because it just hits you that none of it matters anymore. Like the whole book when we're like, who's spying on who and who's who's a contact for who and who's betraying who and where does the loyalty lie? It's interesting how that is the whole book when the entire time of the book, we know that it's all leading to this moment when none of it matters. None of it matters of who was a lover, who was a betrayer. It's just the here and now. And we knew that from the beginning. But yet we still found the day-to-day story of leading up to it pretty interesting. But right now it's just all about who's here and who's not. So when Tess starts talking like Marjorie, it's almost funny because like she's not in the picture, you know, so it just doesn't matter. But I agree. And some of the hardest moments were when they were getting on those lifeboats and the lifeboats were malfunctioning so like these boats full of women and children were just being dumped into sea and you see a lot of chaos there was a lot of floundering and death as they were trying to get everything launched and try to get people off of the ship but finally there is the launch of our four main characters at this point of robert tess caroline and gilbert and they're all together their lives are literally Hanging in the balance, literally hanging in the balance, and we just don't know. And it it does kind of put all of that other stuff in perspective. Things can be so fleeting. Life is can be very fleeting, and you don't know, like, what you have until it's gone, really, I guess, maybe in an ultimate way. I think it's interesting how Tess is constantly describing how Robert is holding her, like, tightly, like, tightly here, tightly there, like making sure obviously that she's not going to like fall overboard or anything like that. But I think he just, he secretly has always kind of cared for her and loved her in his own way. And she's really the only person that we've seen that has been able to challenge him that isn't predictable in some way. He has always predicted the challenging parts from Caroline. He knows those parts. Like those are upfront parts. Like she's married. She loves someone else, that kind of stuff. Those are stuff that he knows but Tess is constantly like, oh, yeah, Marjorie Schuyler is also working against you. And he's like, of course she is at this point. Like, everyone's working against me. But but it's just like her to, to do anything she can to help him because of how she feels about him. And, yeah, I think their love story is pretty pretty complete at this point if if something else happens in the next couple of chapters, like I think there's like three more chapters left, I think. If. It ends up where Robert and Tess don't end up getting married. <laughs> I will just be absolutely, completely shocked. And I'll be like, what 
why why did we go through all this anguish if they don't actually end up together? When you said that she's the only one who challenges him and you paused a little bit, I thought you were going to say she's the only one left. <laughs> she's the only one left for him now that Caroline <laughs> has chosen Gilbert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So we're talking about relationships kind of getting wrapped up here. One other relationship that I just want to get your thoughts on real quick, EJ, which is this comes from Tessa's chapter, of course, as well. And it says her sister lifted her hand, precious stones glinting on her fingers, a carnival of colors, red, green, blue, a king's ransom of jewels reduced to fairground baubles. Blowing a kiss, Ginny called out, see you on the other side, Tenny. So what did you read that as? Did you read that as a suicide or do you think that, do you think Ginny has confidence and says, I'll see you on the other side of the shore? Like maybe Ginny thinks, oh, you know, we've gotten out of all these scrapes and these close encounters. Are they going to do it again? What do you think is going through Ginny's mind? I think it's just Ginny's way of saying goodbye because it's a comforting thing to say. And she knows that that's what Tennessee, her sister, wants to hear. I don't think that Tess will ever hear from Jenny again if Jenny survives. I don't know if I necessarily see it as a suicide per se. I think it's more of just a a, a sisterly gesture of sorry for all this stuff that I put you through. Hopefully this will make you feel better in these last kind of moments and I don't know what's going to happen because sometimes it's just easier to be positive when you know that you might not make it. Yeah, I thought so, too. In the grimmest sense, like I, my picture is now Ginny jumps off the boat. But, you know, <laughs> we'll see. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll probably learn Ginny's fate because at this point, readers are more interested now that we've known that she's been Jones and we've tracked her a little bit throughout the book, either as Ginny or as Jones. We're going to be finishing The Glass Ocean in two weeks uh, because Overbooked is not going anywhere. We're going to launch our next Overbook book shortly thereafter. So in two weeks, we will have the end of The Glass Ocean and we'll have more reminders and more announcements about our next book, which is All the Light We Cannot See. Thank you, listeners, for being part of this podcast community. We're so happy to have you. We hope you'll join us in taking a moment to thank the friends of the library who generously support this endeavor. If you'd like to learn more or join the friends, you can head to their website at jmrlfriends.org. That's all for us today. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. You can get involved on social media or by emailing us at podcast at jmrl.org. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad to be on the same page. page.